Well, if you're new with us, we are going through First uh, Peter, a book in the New Testament. Uh, feel free to grab a Bible or a device and join us in chapter one of First uh, Peter, a series we're simply calling God's People. Um, it's our pattern here at IDC to uh, work through books of the Bible, and um, we just started First uh, Peter last week, so it's it's uh, it's a good time for you to jump in. It's actually a part two uh, as we began looking at uh, this glorious passage uh, in First Peter one. Uh, 3 to 12. Uh, we also looked at uh, the first two verses. Um, it's kind of like going to a Brazilian steakhouse, uh, this, this, uh, this opening chapter. Uh, I'm so old I can remember when you used to go to restaurants and sit down in the restaurant and have dinner. Um, and we took our Aspire guys one time to a Brazilian steakhouse. We only did that once because we broke the bank uh, and can't afford to do that anymore. Uh, but they give you two cards. It's a red card and a green card. And your green card says, keep the meat coming. And the red card means I, I need a break. Uh, and so uh, this, is, this is a feast, a gospel feast in the first chapter of uh, 1 Peter. And we put the red card on verse 5, <clears throat> though we did touch on verse 6 a little bit to set the context, which is, uh, suffering. Peter is writing to scattered Christians across modern-day Turkey, uh, and uh, they're enduring all kinds of uh, various afflictions, and he's writing to give them great hope in the gospel. So let me read uh, verses 3 to 12, and then we'll spend our time this morning on verses 6 to 12. Uh, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. Let's pray together. If your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Lord, we recognize how much we need your word and we're thankful for it. Give us eyes to see the beauty of this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician and theologian. He died in 1662. And until he was 31 years old, Pascal ran from God. Then on November 23rd, 1654, he met Christ and was born anew, as Peter talks about here in verse 3. And that moment he uh, simply called fire. He left behind a note that was sewn into uh, one of his jackets um, that wasn't found until like 80 years after he died. And this is what the note said. 
Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, Feast of St. Clement, from about half past 10 at night to about half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. That's a lot of joy. And that's the joy of salvation that Pascal was conveying. And it's the subject of these verses today. You notice he says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, that's what Peter has been on about. Uh, the joy of salvation. Being born anew, becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus, involves being awakened to joy. It involves being awakened to beauty. It involves being awakened to a whole new world. Now, the, the experience of new life happens uh, differently for different people, but uh, all who are born anew uh, understand this joy of salvation. You could have a very dramatic conversion experience like Pascal or uh, Augustine uh, of old, or it could be more of a slow journey in which you're trying to process and you're thinking through everything like C.S. Lewis. Um, but whether it's dramatic or whether uh, it is the slow, slow process, um, both Augustine and, and Lewis bore fruit. They, they showed that they were uh, alive. And that's the real issue. It's not necessarily identifying the precise moment uh, in, in which you pass from death to life, but it's the fact that you have life today uh, that gives us great uh, cause to rejoice. You may be a young person and experience uh, this new creation. You may be an old person. Uh, Augustine actually uh, wrote, Late Have I Loved You, uh, because he was 32 years old. Uh, when that happened. I know for some of us that's not very old, but um, nevertheless. Uh, and so much of these writers, uh, Augustine and Lewis and Pascal, wrote about happiness or the affections or joy, desire, uh, because uh, that's the, the critical thing and that's what happens when you become a Christian. Uh, your affections change, your desires change. And so First Peter opens up with mega joy. We began looking at it last week, uh, verse 6, when he says, In this you rejoice, or as the NIV puts it, greatly rejoice there, uh, holding on to uh, the, the, the Greek here as uh, it's a compound word, much and jumping, or much uh, gushing or leaping. Um, I thought of the old hip-hop song, uh, Crisscross Make You Want to Jump Jump, uh, back in the day. Um, th it's that kind of, uh, of, of exuberance here that's being conveyed, uh, or more like Shane uh, on Friday, Shane made an eagle. I know it will surprise many of you because he just doesn't look athletic, but he is a really good golfer, and uh, he, he made an eagle. That's for you, Shane. And he was, he was jumping with joy. I'd never seen that much emotion uh, coming out of, of, of that fella. So you see it down in verse 8 as well. This, you rejoice with joy. I mean, that's a lot of joy, isn't it? You rejoice with, you rejoice with joy. Um, that's inexpressible. Well, this is one of the unique aspects of Christianity. Um, we can rejoice always. That's just remarkable. Uh, we can rejoice even in the midst of trials, which is what we're going to look at here. We don't rejoice at the trial. We don't, we're not, we're, we're not uh, seeking to suffer, uh, you know, deliberately. But we understand that our joy is deep 
And uh, the world didn't give this joy, and the world cannot take it away. Now, we noted last week there's, there, we have one big run-on sentence uh, in the original, verses 3 to 12. <laughs> so the next time some of you are writing papers and you get, you get knocked for a, a run-on sentence, you tell them you're being apostolic, okay? That's, that's what you're trying to be. And we had three points last week. I told you I'd give you the other three this week. Uh, we looked at the reasons to rejoice. Number one, regeneration, new life. That's verse 3. Inheritance, verse 4. Uh, we have something glorious coming. We've been born anew to this living hope that looks forward to this glorious inheritance. And number three, protection, that this inheritance is being kept for us. Uh, that is the new creation and all of the blessings of that. And we are being kept for it. And so we can rejoice today because of regeneration. We can rejoice today because of our inheritance. We can rejoice today because of our protection. And I want to add to that list now what Peter says here for purification that our trials are purifying our faith. Five, affection. We rejoice today because we have affections for Jesus Christ. We love him. And six, privilege. That's the last uh, verses there about the angels and the prophets, speaking of the glorious privilege that we have of living uh, on, uh, in this place in redemptive history. So one at a time now, because it's hard to do three at once. Purification. Okay, he says in uh, verse 6, in this you rejoice, in this referring to what he's just talked about, that is salvation, this glorious salvation, in this you rejoice. Okay, so that's again where the joy is found. It's in this, it's in the gospel, it's not in our circumstances, uh, it's not in our comforts, it's in the gospel. In this you rejoice, and it's like there's something that could potentially block you from having joy, namely trials. And so he addresses it. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, <clears throat> if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're often tempted to think uh, that suffering and grief uh, will prevent us from joy. But Peter says, differently. Again, this is one of the unique things about uh, the Christian life. And one of the things that trials are doing, Peter says, is they're purifying our faith. And it's important for us to remember this, that God's goal for you is not your comfort. It's your conformity to Jesus. And to be conformed to Jesus requires some suffering. It requires some fire. So you ask a person, hey, do you want to be like Jesus? And they're like, yeah, I do. Well, how would you like some more trials? No, I don't want those. <laughs> but it is through the fire that we are conformed more to his image. Now, notice a few things about this verse. He says a, a lot in a little uh, amount of space. The reality of trials, we just underscore here that we will have them. The New Testament assumes them. As James said in chapter 1, verse 2, when you face trials. It's not if, but when. That's normal Christianity. That's not because you have weak faith that you're suffering. That's, that's not true. It's because you live in a fallen world. It's because if you try to live faithfully in a hostile world, you'll also uh, have opposition and trials. And further, as Peter says here, sometimes God designs them to refine us through this fire. 
Now, how long is this going to last? Well, notice the period of these trials. It's throughout our life. He says it's for a little while. And this is Peter's way of saying to us, we need to always view trials and suffering in light of eternity. Remember that future inheritance. <clears throat> uh, the New Testament does this in a number of places. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now that's, that's not Paul or Peter here minimizing the trial. I'll get to that in a moment. But they're saying, in light of eternity, they're light and momentary. Or Romans 8, 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing next to the glory that will be revealed to us. In other words, calculate it rightly. Consider the grief, consider the trial with a heavenly perspective. As one saint put it, In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more than one night in an inconvenient hotel. Now, here's the necessity of the trial. He says, in this particular verse, he doesn't point to certain factors related to suffering, which could be sin, it could be Satan, uh, the fall, human choices. Here, the focus is on a divine necessity when he says, for a little while, if necessary. <laughs> so, it's necessary. And that is, there's, there is something that God is doing. Do we know what that is uh, when we're going through the trials? Normally not. But we can say with the psalmist, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Uh, we learn, we grow, we mature in these times. Now, I just want to mention this word grief here for a moment, because in light of everything that's just said about um, it's a short time, view it in light of eternity, um, Recognize that God is going to use them to purify your faith. Uh, we, we don't want to, at the same time, gloss over grief. Um, the Bible doesn't dismiss it or gloss over it, but highlights grief uh, in a number of places. We often say, don't we, the struggle is real. <laughs> and the Bible would affirm that. For example, Psalm 6, verse 6. I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Or Proverbs 15, verse 13. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. But by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is crushed. The Bible has a category here for your spirit being crushed. Of moaning of grief. Philippians 2, Paul speaking about his buddy Epaphroditus, he says he was ill, near uh, to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul knows sorrow, right? We have a whole book called Lamentations. And so I just want to underscore this, that the trial, though we recognize God is purifying our faith, though we recognize we are headed to glory, the struggle is real. The grief is real, and therefore the, the reality of grief should give us compassion for people. We should never make light of someone's grief. Uh, we should never make someone smile when they're hurting. And we should not compare someone's suffering to someone else's suffering so as to trivialize their suffering. What we should do is weep with them. We should put our arm around them. It's not time for our philosophy of suffering. 
We should pray for them. In fact, I would say you need a good theology of suffering before you suffer. Uh, if, you're, if you're not suffering severely, it would be a good time to study it so that you can be prepared for it. Because you have to be in a proper state of mind to receive certain theology on suffering. It's not best normally when you're right smack, I uh, almost did the Shane line there, when you're right in the middle of it. Uh, so here's that purpose though. In light of all of that, being sympathetic and recognizing uh, grief is real and we should have compassion on the hurting. Notice the so that. So that in verse 7. So that your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith, is precious. And he says here, the purpose is that your faith be purified and shown to be genuine. And such faith, he says, has great reward at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is, this is interesting when he says, it may be found, that is your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Now, that could refer to Christ. Through faith, at the coming of Jesus, we will give him praise and glory and honor. And we know we will do that. Or it could refer to the Christian. And I think that's how the verse is intended to be uh, understood. That there is great honor that will be given to genuine believers who trusted in Jesus even through their sufferings. This is similar to what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 6, when he says, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so that's another way of saying you will be honored. You will not be put to shame. And these are, again, Christians living in a society where they were being shamed. They were being marginalized. And this is Peter's way of conveying, hey, the world may shame you, but you will be honored by the one who ultimately matters most the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the only place. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, he talks about, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Now, of course, we'll lay that right back at the Savior's feet and worship him. But it's this way of Peter conveying honor to those who have real faith. You see this sort of thing uh, echoed in other passages like 1 Corinthians 4, um, verse 5. Therefore, excuse me, verse 6. No, it is verse 5. <clears throat> Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then he says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. And the word there is praise from God. Now, we're not being worshipped, but we, it is Peter's way and uh, Paul's way there of communicating this idea that Jesus takes your faith seriously he recognizes it, and one day it will, be, it will be honored. He takes delight when his people trust him, even in trials. Your faith then is valuable, which is why Peter says it's more valuable than gold. Gold is fleeting in light of the, 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 the worth of your faith. There is nothing on earth today more valuable than your faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, you may lose a ton of money during this pandemic, but if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're rich. And like gold, he adds another layer to this analogy, the trials purify us. And this is why, by the way, the church is often very vibrant where there's opposition, where there's suffering. And what's true of churches is true of Christians as well. Soon all trials will cease. 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when you see him, you will be glad you trusted him through the fire. So James has a great word about trials. They mature us. Romans 5 adds the same thing. Peter now throws his teaching into the mix as well. My trials today are for the strengthening and the purification of my faith. What kinds of trials? Various kinds. (laughs) All kinds. So believe it. Number five here, affection. He says in verses 8 and 9, more on joy. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. One of the reasons you can rejoice in trials is your deepest joy is found in your union with Christ. It's in your relationship with Christ. It's not in our circumstances. And you notice here how Peter talks about a love, a joy, that is already and not yet. There is a now love and a not yet love. The the now love there in verse eight, though you have not seen him, we have not seen him now. Peter saw him. Most of the Christians he's writing to uh, uh, did not, Uh, perhaps all of them. But he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Isn't that wonderful? Joy and love for Jesus is not reserved uh, for the by and by. Uh, We'll get there in a moment. But right now we love him. Right now we believe in him. Right now we rejoice with joy. How do you you believe without seeing? That's a great question, right? And many skeptics say that about our faith. Like uh, you guys are praying to it, you know, like uh, some tooth fairy or something, a, a, a fantasy person. No, we can see him with the eyes of our faith. That's what the Bible teaches. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The classic parallel here is John 20, when Thomas, who had some questions, wanted to see uh, if this was Jesus, the same Jesus, after the resurrection, and he, he touched the Savior, and he believed. He made a great confession of faith. Uh, in John 20, and then Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. Blessed are you, happy are you, satisfied are you who believe and haven't seen. You don't have to see Jesus to have passionate love for Jesus. It's inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, if you're not a Christian, I want you to see this. It's very basic, but... The nature of Christianity is not about you adding a few rules to your life or going through some particular uh, religious traditions. You shouldn't envision Christians as strict uh, goody-goodies. What marks a Christian? Love for Christ. That's what a Christian is. A Christian loves Jesus. And John will say in his epistle, and one another echoing the words of Jesus. There's no relationship like your relationship with Jesus. This is what you get invited into. You get invited into a relationship. All relationships affect us in multiple ways. And if you have real affection for Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It changes how you spend money, time, energy, everything, because that relationship is most fundamental. There's a story of an elderly widow that I love who wore a a locket around her neck and 
people wondered, uh, who's inside of that locket? And was it a husband uh, who, who died in the war? Was it a child, um, perhaps? And when she died, they opened the locket, and inside was not a picture, but it was this verse. Though you have not seen him, you love him and rejoice with a joy that is unspeakable. My friends, this is the most important relationship to you. Teenagers, listen. Your most important relationship is not in a boyfriend. It's not in a girlfriend. It is this relationship with Jesus Christ. Those are fine things to have good friends. But this relationship, there is no relationship that's more dependable, secure, and satisfying than your relationship with Jesus Christ. And this relationship literally changes everything, as all relationships do, right? You got a girl who's studying French, and she hates French. And then she goes to study abroad, and she meets a guy who speaks French. Now, all of a sudden, she wants to learn French. Um, or you, I, I've seen before ladies who have no interest, say, in football, and they get married. And now, all of a sudden, uh, she's wearing the jersey on a Saturday or a Sunday. I didn't used to go to musicals until I married my bride. Relationship changes everything. I didn't cheer for DC sports teams until I married my bride. Our loves direct our lives. And if you have deep affection for Jesus Christ, it will change everything. And Peter points it out and he says, the future glory that we are anticipating has broken into the present. It's broken into the present. His glory, this speaks in the Old Testament of God's radiance, of God's brightness, of God's majesty. The good news gives us this kind of joy. So this is a Christian. Joy, 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 tears of joy, as Pascal said. We are marked by a profound joy that is unutterable. A joy so magnificent that it is beyond words. It's inexpressible. It is ineffable. It is all-consuming. It is overwhelming. It is speechless delight. That's what Peter's communicating here. And there's a not-yet love and a not-yet joy in this affection. Notice verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You're going to obtain the outcome, the telos, as Peter says here, the end, the goal. We haven't gotten there yet, <laughs> but we're going there. I don't know if you've ever watched a thrilling uh, movie or a TV show, and the outcome just blows your mind. You're like, I didn't see that coming. Bruce Willis was dead uh, the whole time. <laughs> well, all examples pale in comparison with the end that is coming. The outcome will blow our minds. <laughs> Nobody will be bored in heaven, trust me. We are going to obtain the full salvation of our souls. The half hasn't been told yet what awaits the Christian. And this outcome, this telos, this end, also gives us reason right now to trust because we know how it's going to end. We don't know the beauty and brilliance of all of it, of course, when our faith turns to sight. But we know we, know we are right because he's got us and we're headed to glory. Yeah, I don't know about you, those of you who are sports fans, I apologize for all the sports analogies. Um, but we've had no sports, basically. Uh, the sports that are on, I don't really care about right now. But 
I've been re-watching the Washington Nationals uh, win, the, the, win the playoffs and World Series last year, and it is so much easier to watch these games when you know the outcome. But when those games were going on, I was getting some steps in uh, at the house, pacing, uh, you know, cheering on the team. My friends, we know the outcome. And what we have now is this guarantee that it's going to happen. We have an already love, an already affection, and we're going to have a not yet, and we have a not yet affection that will be realized at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Final thing, number six, privilege. How we doing, Ezra, on time, man? He's probably already checked out on me. Um, <clears throat> this salvation, he says, concerning this salvation, and he begins to talk about the privileged position that Christians are in today. And he does so by speaking historically and cosmically. We are more privileged than the prophets historically, in a more privileged position, and we're more privileged cosmically by nature than the angels because we have received this redemption. And so there are just several things that are just glorious in, this, in these final verses. I'll limit it to six, okay? Uh, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ, as he says, made this salvation, this is number one, known through the Old Testament prophets well in advance. So the coming of Christ was planned. It was foreseen. It was not an afterthought. The New Testament speaks of this regularly. So we see here, as Peter's talking about, the prophets, speaking about the grace that was to be ours, searched and inquired carefully about the, the time of the sufferings of Jesus and the glories of Jesus. So you should see here that the Bible is a unity. The Bible is a unified whole of redemptive history that points us to Jesus. The Bible is like a treasure map that leads us to Jesus. And you should also notice here in Peter saying this, that again, the primary uh, purpose, work of the Holy Spirit is not about guiding you necessarily to who you should marry or what kind of job you should have, but the Spirit is about showing us Christ. The Spirit is predicting here the sufferings and subsequent glories of Jesus. John 16 talks about how the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on the Son of God. And for generations this had been promised, all the way as old as Genesis 3.15. Therefore, if you love Christ today, you should say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening up my, my, my eyes and my heart to see him and believe in him. Secondly here, the glory of this salvation was so remarkable that the prophets had great interest and intense curiosity. God made it clear, it says, that they were serving us and not themselves when they spoke of Christ's advent, Christ's coming. They didn't know everything, just as we don't know everything about the second coming. Even though they wrote amazing things, even they weren't entirely clear sometimes on how things would unfold. It's kind of like when you, if you have bad handwriting, as I do, uh, you, I have some, all kinds of old sermon notes, and I can, I can look at them sometimes and say, I don't even know what this says. <laughs> what did I say? I can make out some of this, but I can't make out all of it. Well, the prophets were, they were, they were, they had intense curiosity searching out these things. The third thing here I want you to see here is that this salvation can be summed up in one word, grace. Notice verse 10. When he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully.
it's good news. Grace is an umbrella term over this whole passage in verses 3 to 9. Your regeneration, grace. Your inheritance, grace. Your protection, grace. Your faith, grace. Your future hope, grace. Grace is God's favor to hell-deserving people. We have grace. Praise God. Fourth, this salvation is made possible through the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ. Verse 11. He predicted the sufferings of Christ and these glories. These sufferings were foretold by the prophets. Uh, we looked at one of them uh, uh, last year, Isaiah 53. We looked at Psalm 22 uh, not long ago. In fact, in Psalm 22, I use this passage as the outline of that psalm. In Psalm 22, verses 1 to 21, sufferings are predicted. And then, in the middle of verse 21 to the end of that chapter, the glories are predicted. The prophets were seeing the sufferings and the subsequent glory. These glories involve Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation at the Father's right hand. Number five, this salvation has now been announced to us in this present age through the proclamation of the gospel. The good news has been announced to us. It is a privilege to be in this age, in this era. This is the age of promises kept. The forgiveness of sins through the Messiah, Messiah is not promised. It's accomplished. The Holy Spirit is not just a new covenant promise. He has been poured out. He is indwelling believers, as the prophets foretold. The new creation that was promised has already begun through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and the gospel is proclaimed more broadly in the world than ever. So we live in this privileged position. So rejoice. This is why we can rejoice. But we're not just privileged historically, but also cosmically. The final thing to see here involves these angels. This salvation, he says, is so marvelous that the angels long to look into it and understand it. He says at the, the last phrase there, things into which angels long to look. They long to look. Parakipsi in Greek, to peer in from without. It's the same word used at the tomb where Mary peers into the tomb. It's the same word in James 1 of looking into the, the word like a mirror intently. They're like guests at a wedding trying to get a view of the bride. <laughs> or they're like a, a young man who gets his first car. He can't stop gazing at it. They're marveling at the sufferings and glories of Christ. Luke tells us that they rejoice when sinners repent. They see the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, and they marvel at it. Neither the prophets nor the angels get to experience what we've experienced and what we get to enjoy in the gospel. Christians today are in a more privileged position, think about this, <laughs> than the prophets of old and the angels on high. And this gives us reason to rejoice, even in suffering. And so, my friend, that leads to a question. Have you lost the wonder of the good news? 
take a cue here from these angels. If the angels can't stop looking into it, then we shouldn't either. For the rest of our lives, we'll be dwelling on the greatness of God's grace in the gospel. Now, this passage speaks to us in many ways, but let me just call your attention as I finish here to three subjects just by way of application. I, I, point, I want to pull these three out because I think these are relevant to every human being who has ever lived. So if you're not a Christian, let me just summarize uh, this section. And if you are a Christian, let me just remind you of these things. Number one, the quest for joy. Number two, the worship of God. And number three, the sufferings of this life. The quest for joy. Everyone chases joy. Pascal wrote about that. That all men, he says, seek happiness. This is without exception. And so here's the question. Where is joy found? Our joy comes from our salvation in Jesus Christ. It's an already, not yet salvation. So, Christian, drink deeply from the wells of your salvation. Drink deeply. Second, the worship of God. Not only does everyone chase joy, everyone worships. The question is, who do you worship? You worship what you love. You worship what you make sacrifices for, what you get excited about. And this text starts with, blessed be the God and Father. It is one big doxology. And that's why it's a big run-on sentence, because Peter is just in praise, erupting in praise. Everyone worships. This text calls us to worship the triune God who has lavished grace on us. Thirdly, the sufferings of this life. Not only does everyone seek joy, not only does everyone worship, everyone suffers. And the question on this subject is, how do you respond to suffering? Peter tells us in this chapter, we have a living hope, even in trials. He tells us that God is purifying our faith in suffering. He tells us that we will be rewarded for being faithful in suffering. And he also tells us that one day suffering will give way to glory. It's for a little while. Our path follows the path of Jesus. No crown of glory without first a, cr a crown of thorns. Peter's audience was suffering. And he mentions throughout the book the example of Jesus, suffering giving way to glory. Therefore, God's people are joy-filled people. God's people are worshiping people. And God's people are hope-filled people. All made possible through Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And all who believe in him will not be put to shame. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that it would change us from the inside out. I pray you would deepen our joy as we ponder the grace of the gospel. I pray that you would grant us uh, faith that endures the fire, that you would make us more and more like Jesus Christ. I pray that you would uh, ignite our heart to worship, grant us hope, give us the long view uh, as we anticipate the not yet aspects of the good news. Uh, be pleased now as we praise you in Jesus' good name. And everybody said.